Hello, and welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. I am your host, Justin Chapman, the author of the book Saturnalia, Traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in Search of an African Utopia, a memoir about my travels across Africa, published by Rare Bird Books. My guest today is Maria Armudian, author of Reporting from the Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs, and an Increasingly Perilous Future as well as the author of Kill the Messenger, the media's role in the fate of the world. Maria is also the host and producer of the radio programs, The Scholar's Circle and The Insiders, which are heard on KPFK and other radio stations. She is a university lecturer in media and politics at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. She's a singer-songwriter and has previously served as a commissioner in the city of Los Angeles. Her journalism has been syndicated by the New York Times Syndicate and the Los Angeles Times Syndicate, and she has written for numerous other outlets. Maria, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. Um, so I just want to read part of the blurb for your book, and then, and then we'll get into it. Um, journalism is a dangerous business when one's beat is a war zone. Armudian uh, tr- reveals the complications facing frontline journalists who cover war zones, hotspots, and other hazardous situations. Her book compares yesterday's conflict journalism, which was fraught with its own dangers, with today's even more perilous situations. In the face of shrinking journalism budgets, greater reliance on freelancers, tracking technologies, and increasingly hostile adversaries. It it also contrasts the difficulties of foreign correspondents who navigate alien sources, languages, and land with domestically situated war correspondents who witness their own homelands being torn apart. Uh, Maria, so tell me a little bit about your book and how you came to work on this project. Well, this particular project, Reporting from the Danger Zone, actually grew out of my first book that you also mentioned, Kill the Messenger, The Media's Role in the Fate of the World. Mm -hmm. So let me just back up and talk about that for just a second so you can see how this naturally progressed. So uh, Kill the Messenger looked at 11 different case studies, mostly life and death situations, and examined it through the lens of what was media's influence in each of these situations. And so we looked at genocides, we looked at wars, we looked at peace processes. I say we, even though it was me. (laughs) It's kind of funny how we do that, isn't it? Um, But, um, and then, you know, democratization, and it's funny you mentioned your your book, um, because I had, you know, a few chapters on Africa, including South Africa and its transformation. uh-huh. into a, a democracy, essentially, yeah. and uh, post-apartheid democracy. So, and I looked at media's role in that as well. And so what essentially the conclusion was from that book is, you know, information matters. And how that information is portrayed and, and, and framed, as we say, makes a really huge difference. And it, in some of these instances, it can be life and death. So you can take countries that are side by side that have very similar dynamics like Rwanda and Burundi, right next door to each other, similar ethnic makeup, similar histories. One of them, um, you know, 800,000 people dead in 100 days. That was Rwanda, of course. And most of us know that the media played this huge role in encouraging people to kill their neighbors and their friends and their students and And so regular people participated in this process. And then you contrast that with something like Burundi, which had its own genocidal history. But they came in, NGOs and others, and set up media that would be fair, that would be ethical, that would be factual, and that would ask responsible questions instead of, you know, 
you know, who's to blame for this or spreading a rumor or inflaming public opinion in some way. And they actually helped to facilitate, along with other factors, a peace process in Burundi. And that's kind of, I use that as an example, even though there were 11 case studies in it, um, it's how ethical journalism can make a difference in reversing the situation, whereas irresponsible hate messages, but everything in between can inflame hostility. Well, so through the process of the first book, I started talking to the journalists who were involved in the uh, various media in these countries. And as I was talking to them, I was realizing this was a complicated process and their own experiences mattered in what they wanted to pursue. The situations made it very difficult for them to give us information that would help us to understand these situations. And, um, you know, sometimes the journalists' lives are at risk or their bodies, their body integrity, their freedoms. And so there are some stories they're just not going to be able to get and some still manage mm-hmm. to get them. So but I was fascinated by this idea of why do we get the information we get? What stories do they go after? How do they do it? How do they navigate this? Um, and so I had the contrast between how foreign correspondents do their work, what stories they pick, how do they get access, because access is often completely blocked off. How do they get through mm-hmm. censors? And then on the flip side, local correspondents, because they face a whole other set of circumstances. They live in these countries. They can't leave. Yeah. Or if they can, right. they often choose not to because they care about their countries. And at the same time, they live in these countries, and they these are their friends that are getting killed. These are their family members that are torn apart. And so there's a whole different approach to journalism that foreign correspondents may or may not often do not um, explore. So it was just fascinating Mm -hmm. to me to really kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the information we get, what makes it to our, you know, screens and newspapers and television monitors, why is it that it got there, um, you know, one of my favorite stories was how Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Roy Gutman uh, found concentration camps in Bosnia when the institutions failed to find the concentration wow. camps in Bosnia. The CIA didn't find them. The Red Cross didn't find them. But Roy Gutman, he sort of, he and his photographer saw what was going on and managed to get enough pieces of the story to assemble it. And that stimulated all the other journalists to come out en masse and start covering Bosnia. Soon all of these concentration camps were exposed. So this is an example of one journalist making a difference. He's not the only one, of course. I've got massive numbers of stories in here. They're just really profound. Yeah, so you interviewed with dozens of danger zone journalists for this book. Uh, it was about thirty-two altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, were the, uh, which story is? Uh, sorry. I said I guess that's dozens. 
Um, so what, what are a couple of stories that, that jumped out at you or surprised you? Well, there were, okay. So there was, there's a journalist that I so admire, female, Syrian-American journalist, uh, stays anonymous in the book because of safety reasons. Um, she goes in and out of Syria, essentially looking like a typical Syrian woman, passing through uh-huh. checkpoints with a borrowed ID. And nobody questions her. She just goes through as if she lives there and blends in with the population. You know, young woman on her own, blending in with the population, getting some of the most hard-to-get stories you could possibly get. Um, That was fascinating. Then one of the local Hmm. journalists in Pakistan um, who has... I mean, Pakistan is an extraordinarily dangerous place for journalists. And he does investigative journalism. At one point, he took on the entire parliament by exposing how most of them had never paid their taxes. Imagine that. (laughs) Then he took on the intelligence um, agency there because they were acting like a rogue agency. And as you might guess, he got kidnapped, abducted, tortured. Mm -hmm humiliated, threatened, and lived to tell. Um, and now Pakistan is not a place where you typically would be able to go to a psychologist. It's a place where once you have been victimized, there's a stigma that comes around. And so this journalist, his name's Umar Tima, who did um, go, he did allow me to use his name, had to learn on his own how to deal with his own trauma and still go forward in essentially what I call public interest journalism, ethical journalism, to tell Pakistanis what's going on in their country and about things that matter to them, not things that affect their lives. And that there's still some things that he said, I can't cover. I can't go cover the Taliban. You know, it's just, I would be dead if I went to that zone. Either the army would kill me or the Taliban would kill me. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is, it's, those are just a couple more of the stories, but at least one, two, three, four, four, I think, of my uh, interviewees had been kidnapped. Wow. Uh, one of them was put on trial. BBC journalist Alan Little was put on trial by the Mujahideen. Um, they were going to kill him because they said he was an agent uh, of Israel. And um, the punishment was going to be death. <laughs> so they were rescued, but it was a close call. And so many mm-hmm. of them have faced this type of thing. Um, story after story. Oh, boy. I'll think of more as we're going. But it's, they're just, yeah. it's so moving what um, they go through to get us this information. Yeah, really. Um, why, why do you think um, insurgents and other combatants have, have become more hostile journalists in recent years? You talk in your book about how the Internet has played a major role, but are there other factors yeah. as well? I do think there are many factors. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, so first of all, let's talk about the Internet. So what's happened is, historically, journalists were respected, and needed, they were necessary for telling the story, especially by rebel groups. 
if they could get the sympathies of a traditional journalist to tell their story, then they would be able to get more and more supporters to their side, put pressures on the government that they are up against, and therefore the journalist is valued. Today with the internet, they don't really need them anymore. So journalists have been disintermediated. They're, in fact, they're in the way because with the internet at your fingertips, if you can develop your own media, you can say the information you want, which is not fact-checked. Right. Say what you want to say about yourself or about your enemy. You can frame it the way you want. You can lie all you want. And a journalist would, in most cases, if it's an ethical journalist, fact-check that or at least try to you know, contrast that with what another um, combatant on the other side has said, but it wouldn't go out mm-hmm. as just propaganda. And so journalists sure. are now seen as in the way of the information wars. So that is a big factor. I also think that wars have changed. Um, you know, you don't have two distinct states. You don't have this territory belongs to this state, this other territory belongs to this other state. It's really murky. It's really messy, very chaotic. You know, it's hard to know what territory you're in. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a gamble when it becomes sort of you go in and you take your risks of who you're going to run into and who actually controls the territory. There's one of the stories that Roy talked about in which they thought they were in one group's territory, and it turned out they were in ISIS's group territory. <laughs> and even though they had passes, they, because one of the things that journalists say is, it makes a difference if you have a pass from whoever is controlling the territory. They have let you in, that they have signed off on your documents. And so they had right. to prove that they had been signed off on, that they had permission to be in the area. It's not always going to get you out alive, but mm-hmm. in that in the case sure. of Gutman, it did. That was a long-winded way of answering your question, but I'm long-winded. Yes, <laughs> right. Um, so, so is there anything that... Uh, I mean, what can journalists do to protect themselves, if anything, in these zones? You know, it's interesting. Um, there were a lot of different strategies in protecting themselves. Um, some of them tried to protect themselves with all of the apparatus that their institutions provided, whether it was security mm-hmm. organizations, multiple cars, black jackets. And another journalist said, that's way too much that makes you a target. I never wear a flat jacket, none of them said. I would never wear it. It makes hmm. me a target. I want to blend in with the locals. I don't want to look yeah. like I'm an American or a British person or I want to look like a local person. So there, there, is, there are different strategies for different groups. Now, some people said if you're going to go into an area where your life could be at risk, it would make sense to have two cars. What if your car breaks down? You don't want to be without a vehicle. So the, this yeah. would be one thing. Some people tried armored, ve- armored vehicles, but most of them said, no, it's not worth it. Um, just maybe you should stay out of the region if you're going to need an armed vehicle. Um, armored vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that um, some of them took extraordinary risks that maybe 
turned out a really good story, but maybe in the future they wouldn't do that again. Mm-hmm. So that the decision itself of going in is sometimes something you have to evaluate over and over and over again. Um, so it's uh, it's <laughs> it's quite complicated, and I'll tell you that. Yeah, you know, we have we have all these international laws um, or resolutions that declare journalists should be protected as civilians, and you know, it, they really don't mean very much without mm-hmm. some kind of enforcement. And it's very rare that you see a lot of enforcement around journalists getting killed. There has been recently. I was writing about this, um, a lawsuit filed against the country of Syria. It's a civil lawsuit. It's filed in the United States court, and it's because of the extrajudicial killing of Marie Colvin, who was shelled to her death in 2012. She's a pretty, um, she's been to a lot of war zones. She was with one of the journalists I interviewed in Iraq during the first Gulf War, where they uh-huh. essentially settled a dispute between um, the, the sides of the conflict on whether or not civilians had been shelled. They physically went there and counted bodies. You know, that's something wow. a journalist would do. But she was killed in Syria three-ish, four-ish years ago, and people believed that it was a targeted killing, that the Syrian government wanted to kill her. And so now her sister has filed a lawsuit because the U.S. government had passed a law a few years ago saying that you can sue governments who engage in terrorist activity. So we'll see if that generates anything. Will the lawyers get to get, will they get discovery? Will they get documents? Will they get Bashar al-Ashad served? Will they get his people served? Will they get him in court? If they do, what does that mean? If it's a U.S. court, will people respect the outcome? But at least it is something that goes along the lines of enforcement on behalf of a journalist, in this case, Marie Colvin, who was American, even though she wrote for a British newspaper. Uh So there needs to be more of this. Absolutely. Not just civil suits. There need to be other types of enforcement actions so that, so that people know they can't just kill with impunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's tough. Um, you, you know, especially for um, freelance journalists, um, is it worth the risk uh, anymore for them? Is their sense of duty to inform the world about what's going on in conflict zones worth the risk to their lives? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question, and I, I did interview some freelance journalists, too, so I wouldn't have just um, the staff journalists who had the support of major organizations. And they talked about this. They said, look, we couldn't afford, you know, to buy all the things that um, staff journalists can buy, including mm-hmm. uh, local translators and guides and cars and, you know, flat jackets or whatever it is that they needed. They could afford to buy one local person for a few weeks. When I say buy, I mean, uh-huh. you know, pay to get them to guide you and take you around. 
who know the local people and who can get you through, get you some interviews. Um, and so they had to rely on their own sort of instinct in these cases. But I, it just depends on the person. Uh, one of the local mm-hmm. journalists that I interviewed, a guy named Balint Slanko, he's Hungarian freelancer who was kidnapped. And it affected him. I mean, he, he, for a long time, he had very difficult time going into additional war zones. Um, but he just, he loves his work. He loves what he does. Yeah. He loves seeing history firsthand, documenting it. Um, in another case, Dar Jamal writes for uh, Truth Out, is a staff writer now, but he was a freelancer covering the Iraq War. He went unilaterally in, um, just felt like there wasn't enough from most of the journalism in the U.S. that was covering what was happening to the Iraqi people. So he felt like there was a mm-hmm. story that needed to be told. And so he went there himself to get that story in multiple pieces and tell that story to the American people. That's, an, that's a call of duty, and different people have right. different calls of duty. Uh, most of the journalists I talk to do have that sense of public service. Not all of them. Most of them mm-hmm. did. So they're strongly <laughs> compelled strongly compelled to tell these stories because they want somebody to do something. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what, what does the uh, future of conflict reporting look like? Do you see a future oh, of only God, freelance and citizen journalists? No, I don't think it's going to be only. Um, I do think that mm-hmm. there will always be staff writers. You know, there will always be a, if not the New York Times, a version of the New York Times and a BBC and um, various. But I do think there is this change that's going on, even among the major newspapers, where they're not sending their journalists in as much, and they're having them report from, um, you know, news agency press releases and stuff from the conflict zone, which means that they're not getting fact-checked as much. Um, one of the journalists I interviewed was Carol Williams, who was at the LA Times for many years and Associated Press for many years. She's just retired. And she she said it, it used to be called plagiarism, what they're having us do. <laughs> I thought it was just right. the LA Times. She said, but now the New York Times has somebody doing the same thing they're asking me to do. And I used to go to these places regularly, but they're not sending me there anymore. So there is a frustration among veteran foreign correspondents um, because of the limited budget. And I think that a lot of mainstream news outlets, if their interest is primarily, um, you know, financial, then they're all going to cut corners and keep shutting bureaus and that sort of a thing. It doesn't mean there won't be some that still do it. There's still quite a few. Um, But it'll be less and less unfortunately, and they will rely on other reports. It might end up being good places. I mean, Human Rights Watch, we saw what they provided during the refugee crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. It made so many newspapers when they um, published photos of refugees, little boys lying face down in the sand. You know, that was Human Rights Watch doing its job, making it into the newspaper's so that's a different kind of journalism. It's not 
standard traditional journalism, but it's, you know, a way of getting the information. I think it's just much more chaotic now. Yeah. Um, and, and also, um, uh, do you think that um, danger zone reporting is, is not just geographical these days, but could also be categorized as subject matter as well? Uh, I'm thinking of, for instance, the Charlie Hebdo killings, where France wasn't at the time considered a conflict zone, but the subject matter they're writing about was, and the conflict sort of found them. Yeah, that's a very interesting point you bring up. Absolutely. And I think that this is connected to a globalized world. You know, we are increasingly globalized yeah. and interconnected, and it's this is just one of the things that we're going to have to deal with as a humanity. And, you know, I'm all for free speech, but I'm also for really responsible speech. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm a complete, you know, anti-violence person. Um, I, it's, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure how to address situations like that. We want to have a place for satire. We want to have a place right. um, where people can express all of those things and not fear for their lives. And, you mm-hmm. know, not just in, not just in France, yeah. in the whole world. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, Home Homefront Rising and Project Danger Zone and, and how your, oh, your work ties in Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're hoping to do is to um, provide a means of, you know, veterans and journalists being able to um, do a form of citizen journalism it's still in its infancy, so I don't want to talk too much about that yet, if that's okay. Uh-huh. It's sort of sure. still in its planning phases, but it's you know, the whole idea of helping veterans and um, and helping journalism at the same time and looking for yeah. ways to have those two, those two important parts of our society be um, mutually beneficial. But it's still so, mm-hmm. you know, in its infancy that I'm afraid that if I talk too much about it, I'll end up saying something that we, you know, have aren't able to do, or it turns out a little bit different right. than where we what I say. Yeah, sure. Um, do you, Do you have any uh, upcoming events related to your book? You know, we're we're looking at a few potential ones, but we haven't we haven't yet scheduled them here in the U.S. So I go back to New Zealand uh, toward the end of September, and I have some mm-hmm. talks uh, planned in there in New Zealand. But I don't know uh, what we're doing yet in the U.S. Jeff would know that. Uh, and uh, is there a, a website where people can get updates? Um, I know you can go to the Home Front Rising. You can also go to my website, which is armudian.com. Um you know, we're still pretty lame in that we haven't even set up a page for the book yet on, on our website. But uh, uh-huh. I know that um, we've already got a page set up at home on the home front rising. Cool. Well, Maria, thank you so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate your time and your interest. Thank you so much.
Sure. Uh, we just heard from Maria Armudian, author of Reporting from the Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs, and Increasingly Perilous Future. Check out her work at homefrontrising.org or armudian.com. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Well Read. I am your host, Justin Chapman, author of the travel memoir, Saturnalia, traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in search of an African utopia. Join us next time on Well Read with Justin Chapman. A life well read is life well spent, so pick up a damn book already. See you next time.